Hello once more and welcome back to another episode of Signals to Danger. This is a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out and how each of those accidents shaped the industry going forwards. Because of that, sometimes the content that we discuss is distressing and the subject that we cover means that loss of life and injury are a feature of most episodes. My name is Dan. I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. Now it has been a little while since the last episode, so to give you a peek behind the curtain, while the last few weeks have been a little bit full on for the Fox household, we found out that Mrs. Fox, or Mrs. Signals, I have occasionally referred to her, um, is getting a new job, which means that we've been having to move a bit closer to to where she's going to be working. So evenings which would previously have been filled with me tippy-tapping away on my keyboard have kind of been replaced with me um, endlessly... (laughs) endlessly searching through right move and zoopla and finding places to rent that work for travel etc etc lots of fun really enjoyed it clearly adding to that fun and games um that i have through misadventure far too embarrassing to detail on this forum have made myself temporarily partially deaf in my right ear um i'm not holding breath for an amazingly high quality recording session tonight because I actually need to be able to hear myself while I do this. Um, And my right ear is just not bringing me anything useful right now. And for my last excuse, and I promise it's the last one, I have been glued to the news and um, online forums with everything that's been going on in the world. And it isn't remotely related to the podcast, but I think it would be remiss of me not to mention um, the crisis in the Ukraine and how scary that is for all of us. But enough excuses from me now, so I will move on with the day. As I've said a few times now, I live stream the recording sessions for these podcasts, so if you are one of the ones watching currently, then hello! All patrons can watch these back normally, and live streamer team supporters are currently watching it live, but today, all patrons are watching it live because I've kept them waiting a little bit longer than normal as well. I'll quickly thank Graham, Mike and Roy for their new and increased pledges and hopefully I'll see a few more of you next time we do a recording session. With all of that wordiness out of the way, I think it's time now for us to get into another episode. Twas the day before Christmas and all across the dales shone the glow of a fire that reflected on rails. The carriages were splintered and the smoke filled the dawn and the faces of rescuers were grim and forlorn. The year is 1910, and the place is Hawes Junction. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. Investigators at the scene search through the wreckage for the engine. A point's failure. On a podcast about train crashes, it's unsurprising that we talk about trains, locomotives, safety systems and stations. In the mix of all of this, we also discuss the lines that these accidents take place on. The tracks where accidents take place on are probably less important than the features that they contain. The points, the curves, the elevation, the speed. All of this is really important when we're discussing accidents and you've heard me harp on about all of it so, so many times before. But... 
I'd like to take a step back from that, look less at the steel, wood, concrete and stone that makes up the permanent way, and look out from it. The locations of railway lines range from the industrial to the beautiful, the urban to the countryside. This variety leads to quite the range of different aesthetics. Cooling towers and pipework, flare stacks and blast furnaces, they can be seen in the industrial heartlands of Teesside and Deeside. Glass and steel monolithic skyscrapers create canyons bracketing the multi-track approaches to London and Manchester, and the rolling fields can be found bracketing the lines of East Anglia and North Yorkshire. These images are all part of the scenery of our railway, part of the story of how we get around and the fabric of our country itself, but the scenery is just part of what you see when you pass through the routes, but not always. There are some routes up and down the British Isles, however, where the scenery is so much more than just a side effect of where you are. Routes where the destination is the location. Lines where people travel to for the experience of being on that line. There's a website, Scenic Rail Britain. It lists a whole raft of railway lines which are worth visiting purely on their own merit on the basis of how pretty they are. The lines are given categories, picturesque, coastal or those with specific historical significance, all fairly self-explanatory. But there is one last category. Epic landscapes. Home to routes like the West Highland Line and the Highland Main Line, views of Scottish mountains and lochs, the Esk Valley route between Middlesbrough and Whitby, and the Heart of Wales Line, which, if you remember, we visited in a previous episode, Glanrid Bridge. But there is one resident of this list which is a classic, great British railway route, the Settle to Carlisle. Arguably one of the most famous railways in the UK, running between Settle Junction to the northwest of Leeds to Carlisle in Cumbria, the line crosses the remote, scenic regions of the Yorkshire Dales and the North Pennines, traverses 14 tunnels, 22 viaducts as it just gets across that rough, beautiful terrain. And the line has a reputation for being beautiful and People travel from all over the world to come and ride those rails, and some of you might even be listening now. It wasn't always just a scenic route. For many years, the route formed one of the key journeys between the northern cities in Scotland, with express trains carrying passengers north and south. The line was engineered to express standards throughout, and to be fair, at that point, local traffic was secondary. And while there were a number of stations along the route, many of them were miles away from the villages which they purported to serve. One defining feature of the line is known as the Long Drag. It's a 16-mile climb between Settle and the line's summit near Garsdale. The line was operated by one of the pre-grouping railway companies, one of the bigger ones, mind, the Midland Railway, and this was the route of their express trains north and south. But the route's express nature, well, that was not going to last forever. In 1923, the Midland and the London and North Western Railway were both merged into the new London, Midland and Scottish Railway. And in the new company, well, the disadvantages of the Midlands route between Settle and Carlisle were clear. Its steeper gradients and greater length than the West Coast Main Line route, well, it meant that it couldn't compete on speed from London to Glasgow. Especially as Midland route trains had to make more stops to serve major cities in the Midlands and Yorkshire. For a long time, the Midland had competed on the extra comfort that it provided for its passengers, but in a world that increasingly wants to get there quickly, this advantage was lost in the merged business. 
The prominence and service on the line continued to decrease and when the railways were nationalised in 1948, the pace of rundown increased. Essentially at this time the line was only really serving as a duplicate of other routes. The 1960s brought with them the Beeching Act and it was recommended that all passenger services to be withdrawn from the line and by May of 1970 all of the stations bar two were closed and the passenger service was cut down to two trains a day in each direction leaving well, mostly freight, and by 1980s, plans were afoot to close the line. And at that time, it came remarkably close to being lost at that stage, and we've seen how difficult it's been to reopen other railways, and if it had gone, it's not easy to get them back. But it was due to the efforts of campaign groups that the line remained open, and in 1983, 93,000 journeys became 450,000 by 1989. And they did us all a good deed, those campaign groups, and while you will, you're not going to find a Scottish Express travelling along the line, Northern now runs a fairly regular service. But let's focus less on what is now, and let's head back to the early 1900s, to the heyday of the line. We start the story of today's disaster at the station of Garsdale in Cumbria. The valley of the same name can be found in South Lakeland and features a number of small settlements. The line here featured a junction in the past which took a line off towards the town of Hawes on the Wensleydale Railway. Because of that, this station wasn't always known as Garsdale and had originally been called Hawes Junction when it opened in 1876. And by June of 1910, the station was further enhanced by the removal of two separate signal boxes into one brand new signal box that would look after everything in the area. A signal box which, unsurprisingly, will play some part in the events of this tale. While the entire line of the Settled to Carlisle feels quite remote and exposed, Halls Junction is no exception. The station was only a few miles south of the summit at the line at Ayers Gill, and the terrain was in line with that so you could be forgiven for thinking that the station would be quiet and uneventful to accompany that remote feeling. Well, it wasn't quite. There was the junction off to Hawes, and yes, that added a little bit of work to the signaller's job, but not much, especially considered to the other aspects of the role that this particular station added. Hawes Junction was remarkably well-equipped for what could realistically have been a remote fellside station. It had two platforms, a small goods shed and some accompanying sidings, all relatively standard for railways at that time. And even when you threw in a line behind the southern platform, the southern bound up platform, which took the trains off to Hawes. But to the north of the station, there were another four sidings, a turntable and a loop line alongside of the down main towards Carlisle. This was a whole raft of infrastructure and didn't really seem to tally with a station this small and remote. Not 
least at least not until you understand a little bit about how the Midland Railway operated at that time. While some railways had spent considerable resource developing larger, heavier and more powerful locomotives, the Midland, for most of its existence, had a small engines policy. The railway preferred small locomotives hauling frequent fast trains. These trains were reliable and offered a good level of service to passengers, but small locos aren't going to work in every circumstance. Where services required a bit more speed or there were longer and heavier trains, well, these little locos would struggle to deliver the power that was needed, so it wasn't unheard of for the Midland to double up its trains with two locomotives, double-heading them to provide the power needed. I say it wasn't unheard of, it was remarkably common. And this practice made it onto the Settle and Carlisle route as well. The Midlands Express route to Scotland meant that faster, heavier trains were needed, and so double-headers were the norm. But the issue created by small engines was compressed even further by the steep terrain of the route that went via Hawes Junction. The line here was steep, and despite the fact that extensive engineering had been done to make the route passable, passable and easygoing are different things, and that long drag, well, that was still hard work. Despite the fact that two locomotives headed up trains, there was the need for an extra bit of oomph at times. Let's have a quick conversation about banking. Nope, it's not a dirty word, and no, I'm not talking about taking up, well, counting up the railway's takings for the day. Banking is a process which sees additional locomotives added to a train to help it climb over a difficult piece of railway. Additional locomotives were added onto the trains as they climbed over the summit on the settled Carlisle line, both northbound and southbound trains. The locos were added at Leeds and Carlisle at the bottom of the climbs, and when they reached the summit at Aysgill, they were removed there. Now, this solved the problem of having trains reach the top, and, well, let's be fair, the other half of the route down into either Leeds or Carlisle was going to be far easier for both the crew and the locomotives. It did, however, leave a second problem. There was now an extra loco or two stuck at the summit of the line, and well, they would just be in the way of any other trains travelling along the line, so what to do? Well, this is the reason for the infrastructure at Hawes Junction. Once banking locos had been coupled from their trains, they travelled three and a half miles to Hawes Junction Station, travelling along the upline, southbound towards Leeds. Locos that had been sent up from Leeds reversed along the up, and those from Carlisle Shed travelled straight on. The reason for the turntable at the station was so that those locomotives could be turned around and sent back facing the right way to their home sheds. This is the reason there were sidings and turntables and all this infrastructure there was to allow for this marshalling of trains, and then in turn for the signaller to send the locals back down the hills, slotted into the regular timetable as and when he could find a slot. Bish, bash, bosh. For this reason, it's easy to understand why the role of the signaller at Hawes might be a little bit more complex than it would initially seem. And in turn, to understand how that could go from everyday challenges to total disaster, we need to head back to Christmas of 1910, the very early hours of Christmas Eve, to be precise.
Christmas of 1910 was, well, like most Christmases are, a busy time of year. People travelling around the country and goods being shipped from region to region. The railway, as we well know, plays a vital part in this process. And it wasn't a fact lost on Signalman Sutton as he booked onto shift at 8pm on the 23rd. He climbed up into the box and set about the work of passing trains up and down the line, bringing light locals back into the station, turning them and sending them back from whence they came. Each movement was logged in the register, each bell dutifully answered and sent along the line. He worked onwards through the night and into the early hours of the morning, train after train passed the box, and he signalled them, marshalled them and sent them home again. While he undertook his shift, one train started its journeys many miles away. The Midnight Express from London St Pancras to Glasgow, carrying out its journey north without any incident, or as the report puts it, without any cause for particular comment. Eventually it left Leeds six minutes late and continued its journey north. This train was headed up, as you might expect, by two locomotives. It was, however, only just in excess of the weight that a single one could have handled. Only eight coaches were coupled up behind it, three third-class coaches, a composite carriage, two sleepers and two brake vans. Enough seats for the 122 passengers and enough beds for 22 people to have a kip which was handy considering the, well, very unsociable hours of the journey. Carriages were all of a typical construction for the time, and with the exception of the two sleeper cars, were lit by the pinch system. This system consisted of compressed gas, which was fed through a regulator to reduce the pressure, and then in turn to burners in the carriages. This might sound a little bit scary, light by what is essentially fire, but it was, for many years, the way that we got our light in our houses, on the streets. Gas-fed burners or mantles glowed up and down the country, guiding people through the dark. Not on the footplate, however. The firebox which drove the engines through the night gave plenty of heat and light for the men working on the footplate. As the engines started the journey up the long drag from Settle, they did so without taking on any banking engines. The fact that the train was only just in excess of the weight that could be handled by one train, well, that meant that it had enough steam to pull the eight carriages up the slopes at a decent clip as well. The train called at Keithley and Skipton and set off towards the climb 16 minutes late. This wasn't true of every train, however, and on that morning, plenty of them had required a helping hand to get them up the hill. In fact, by half past five in the morning, very, very close to home time for Sutton in the signal box, he had dealt with plenty of light locos in between the timetable trains. Light locos, by the way, is a phrase that we use to describe locos running without carriages or wagons, just on their own. In the last hour, Sutton had dealt with nine light locos, so that doesn't even take into account the heavy timetable of actual services passing up and down the line or any of the seasonal traffic that was mixed in there as well. It was at this time that two light engines were brought south from the summit and into the line running behind the up platform. These two locos would play a crucial role in what was to come next. Numbers 448 and 548, under the controls of drivers Scott and Bath, ran through the back platform line. They were held here until a special express ran through the station and then Sutton cleared his signals to bring the two locals onto the down main line, up to the advance starting signal just to the north, right next to where the turntable was, but on the down main line. Now they'd sit there until the special that had just passed cleared Aysgill. And this was fairly normal practice. 
When the route was cleared, the signal would be pulled off and the light locals would steam north to Carlisle. And normally this would take four to five minutes, so Bath and Scott had no concern over what was going on. And why should they? While the locals sat there waiting, Sutton tended to other matters concerning signalling around the busy station. Bell codes received, levers pulled, bell codes sent. From the point Sutton brought the two light engines onto the down main, he was a busy man. First, he accepted an up goods train from Ace Gill, heading back down towards Leeds. Then he brought two of the light locals from the turntable road across to the back platform line in preparation for a journey south. They were headed to Leeds. Then at around 5.25, he thought he brought a third light local onto the back road the loop line adjacent to the down main and Scott and Bath. At this point, the signal came back from Ayers Gill that the special had cleared the line there and the route north was available again. Although the option to release Scott and Bath was now here, well, Sutton was presently arranging the dispatch of those two locomotives bound for Leeds. Shortly after, the up freight passed through Halls Junction and another train was offered to follow. He knew that he had those two light locos to get rid of towards Leeds, so Sutton contacted his colleague at Ace Guild to ask whether or not he could get them away without delaying that second goods train. The answer was no, unfortunately, and so Sutton accepted the second up freight. At 5.43, that second freight thundered through the station, and on the line next to them as it passed, finally some relief. At last, 20 minutes after they arrived at the signal, Scott and Bath saw it clear in front of them, Red became green and the signal arm moved to give them the authority to depart. Quick pip on the whistles, they took steam and started to power north uphill with a steady speed slowly growing. They moved out of the station, heading north, rounded a corner and entered Moorcock Tunnel. They'd reached the about 25 miles an hour by this point. They exited the tunnel, crossed Moorcock Viaduct and shortly reached a footbridge known as Grisdale Crossing. It was at this point that it became clear something very out of the ordinary had happened. And to understand what, we need to rewind the clock by about five to ten minutes to something that had happened at Hawes Junction. Just before that up threat, up threat, had thundered south through the station, rocking the locals sat at the down main, Sutton had received another set of bells. This time, they'd come from Dent, the next box to the south. He had been offered the Sleeper Express for Glasgow, and despite the fact that Scott and Bath sat in the route, he accepted it. What's more, at 5.43, while the freight was passing, he offered the Sleeper through to the box at Aysgill. Aysgill accepted, and then Sutton dutifully pulled off the signals to allow it to pass. Bath and Scott were not the intended recipients of that movement authority. Sutton had signalled another train through them. Disaster was imminent. But delayed by the fact that the light locals had somewhere to be, they steamed out the station and through the tunnel, 
but they were making gains on a standing start, and this put them at an advantage, well, a disadvantage, when they were being followed by a lightly loaded, double-headed express train. And at the point when Bath and Scott reached Grisdale Crossing, they also reached a conclusion. They were in trouble. Bath saw in the tunnel behind the headlights of another train, gaining on them. A moment later, it emerged from the tunnel. He recognised it as an express train by the fire flying from the smokestack, a sign of a loco under full steam tackling the gradients of the settled Carlisle with all the vigour it could muster, and there was two of them. Bath had time to do very little at this point. He opened the regulator, tried to get every last inch of speed from every drop of steam he had. He got the attention of Scott driving the lead loco using a hand lamp and told his fireman to keep the whistle on. Too few tools available to the men, with not enough time to make a a difference. On the footplate of the express, the other half of the story had been told. Driver Oldcorn at the controls of the loco had responsibility for the train. Clear signals through the area meant that the train passed through Hawes Junction at 60 miles an hour. By Moorcock Tunnel, he'd get two more out of that, and at 62 miles an hour, he thundered out onto the viaduct. And at that point, in the gloom ahead, Old Corn became aware of a single red light, the very same one that was attached to the rear of Bath's locomotive. Old Corn didn't have the time to react in anything that could be remotely described as a meaningful way. He applied the brake of his train and felt the full force of the collision almost instantly afterwards. In fact, it doesn't really appear from either of the driver's accounts that more than five or six seconds elapsed from the moment that they became aware of each other to the point where the collision took place. And that collision was substantial. Bath was thrown from his train and knocked unconscious almost instantly. His loco and that of Scott's were derailed, grinding up and destroying 300 metres of the down line. Behind them, Oldcorn's loco derailed to the left and its smoke box scored a mark in the cutting slope to the side of the line. But the real damage? Well, that was occurring behind the locomotives. The steel frame of the second coach rode under the frame of the first, with the result that the three third-class compartments at the end of the first vehicle and four or five compartments at the leading end of the second were just crushed together, completely destroyed. Telescoping is something that we've discovered previously and images of the terror that must have been experienced by those on board will always cross my mind. A complete loss of survival space for so many areas of the leading two carriages. Despite the ferocity of the collision, with the exception of broken buffers, there was little serious damage done to the last six vehicles of the train by the collision, and though all the lights in the first three vehicles were extinguished by the crash, they remained burning in the last five vehicles. It was likely that a few minutes had elapsed before anyone really understood what had happened, and that a few more passed while people were pulling themselves from the wreckage. Most of the coaches were tilted over towards the cutting, and in many cases there was difficulty experienced in opening the carriage doors, let alone climbing down to the ballast in the total darkness that they suddenly found themselves in. It was at this point, stood in that dark, on a railway line in the hills, they will have noticed something about the leading coaches. They were no longer dark. They had caught fire. A witness in a cottage 200 yards from the crash site told investigators of a bright flare of burning gas he'd seen. Rescuers were forced back from the fire as they tried to release men from the wreckage of the carriages. Bath, despite him being thrown from the wreckage and briefly knocked out, had made his way on foot to the Ayersgill signal box a mile and a half north to try and get help. 
When he arrived, the signalman there, Benjamin Ballas, sent another light engine with Bath along the line to assist. Driver Judd, in control of that loco, attempted to put out fire by bucketing water from his tender onto the flames. The efforts were in vain, however. The fire spread, carried by the wind which was blowing strongly from the head of the train, taking flames along the gangways and corridors into the vehicles behind. The efforts to put out the flames were aided by three passengers who joined a bucket chain, although, after 20 to 25 minutes, there was no water left in Judd's tender for the task. While Judd was bailing on water, his fireman Jenkins, from his engine, extricated two or three passengers from one of the centre compartments of the two leading carriages by using a coal hammer to break in the panelling and then provided a hand lamp for the passengers to help get themselves out. There were brave, brave efforts made to save life on the hillside that morning. Of that there is no doubt. And in fact, some of the tales are haunting. There were calls for an axe, and two men made their way to a permanent way hut on the line 200 yards south, returning with an axe and a crowbar. The men and other passengers endeavoured with these tools and some hammers obtained from the engines to extricate passengers pinned down in the wreckage. Only one of those who was trapped, a youth, is known to have been conscious at the time they were doing this. Their efforts were valiant, but ultimately in vain. They forced away into the corridor and cleared away the broken woodwork, but one after another they were driven out by the heavy, choking smoke. They then cut through the east side of the coach, opposite to where the unfortunate passenger was imprisoned, only to find the way to him blocked by timbers. Finally, attempts were made to break through the roof and also to obtain an entrance into the carriage from the west side, but again the smoke drove them back. Finally, reluctantly, painfully, the heat of the fire and the suffocating fumes forced them to give up the mission. There can be no doubt, from the accounts of those on the ground, that the one passenger they knew was alive was rendered unconscious by the smoke before they were obliged to give up the rescue attempts, but still they risked life and limb to try. Another light engine from Hall's Junction came, and its crew tried to drag away the rear six coaches from the fire, but could only move the two brake vans at the rear of the train. The six leading coaches were immovable. Eventually, it was conceded that the fire could not be extinguished and all six coaches left were burned out on the side of what is arguably the most beautiful line in the country. But beauty was not present on Christmas Eve of 1910. While 17 people were injured in the darkness, 12 of the 56 passengers on board the train had lost their lives in the disaster, their bodies taken temporarily to lie at a nearby inn press-ganged into service as a mortuary. Three days later, in the very same inn, an inquiry began. The aim of it, to understand the reason that such a high price had been paid by a dozen passengers who had entrusted their safety to the Midland Railway. When the inquiry into the accident began, it set out to understand the reason that a train loaded with passengers had tried to overtake two engines travelling on the same line. Clearly, something had gone wrong, and Major Pringle, in charge with discovering the answer, set out to understand what. 
We might not have done this for a while, but I'm going to split it out into three main questions that need to be tackled head-on. First, and of course the most obvious, what led to trains sharing the same bit of line? Signalling clearly should have prevented this, so what went wrong? Secondly, were there any missed opportunities to prevent disaster from taking place? And finally, what could have prevented this accident from happening? What could we change to save lives in the future? With the targets set out, investigators began the work of providing answers to an industry that waited patiently for them. The main question which needed answering to understand this accident is what had gone wrong to bring those two trains together, and we do already have a basic idea of the cause. The signalling at Halls Junction, well that was set up as absolute block, which means there should only ever be one train in each section, and this should be policed by a system of signalmen. I'm not going to go into the intricate details of absolute block because we already have several times over in various different episodes, but the basic version is... Each signal box offers trains to the next signal box, and if the line is clear, they accept them and then offer them onto the next. This is a way of checking that trains are, in theory, only allowed into a section of railway which is clear. The methodology in its basic form relies upon signalers to just keep everybody safe, which is one of the reasons the role carries such a large amount of respect and an opinion of professionalism. Although not to say that they are infallible, because they're not, and we've seen that on plenty of occasions not least on this podcast. It's also the reason that the acceptance and offering of trains was done in question form. The bell code to offer a train forward to the next box isn't train on the way or here comes an express. No, the code at this end is is line clear. A nice, clear question that asks one simple thing. Is the line clear? It means that a train's being offered forwards, but in the simplest form it prompts, or it should prompt, an actual check that there is no danger. And this is what was taking place on Christmas Eve of 1910. Sutton was sat, or rather stood, in the box at Horse Junction. To his north, the next box towards Carlisle was at Aysgill, and to his south towards Leed, Dent. These three boxes were constantly sending messages back and forth to each other all day, every day, passing trains between them in this relay system, and this is what happened on the 24th. As the light engines under the control of Bath and Scott were brought back into the back platform line, a down special express, which was run for the holidays, was offered by Dent to Hawes Junction. Sutton accepted the train, offered it on to Ayres Gill, who accepted it. He then had the light locos waiting until that train passed through the junction, passed through the station, before he allowed the light locos to pass out onto the down main line to stand at the signal there. And they would have to stand and wait until one further part of the process had taken place. Because not only did signal boxes have to ask the next one, the one we call the box in advance, if the line was clear to send the train along, they also had to tell the box back along the line, the box in rear, that the last train had made it out of their section. Sutton couldn't release Bath and Scott to Carlisle 
until he'd received that message from Ayers Gill, the message that said, train out of section, and that told him that the line was clear towards the south, at least. At that point, he could have offered the light locos forwards, pulled off the signal and sent them on their way. This process should not have taken a stupidly long period of time. Maysgill wasn't that far away and the express had been under steam as it passed it. Would it have been reasonable to expect Bath and Scott to wait at the signal for five or so minutes, but the time by the time the signal cleared and they actually left, it had been closer to 20. This was not a normal occurrence, and naturally, investigators spoke to Sutton to understand what happened. The manner in which Sutton provided his evidence to Pringle was described as being very straightforward. He sold how the two light engines were brought across from the back platform road to the down main at about 5.20, after a down Special Express had passed, and how it was his intention to dispatch them to Carlisle after the Special Express had cleared from Ayers Gill. Around six minutes later, Sutton received the clearing back message from Ayers Gill, the message to say the line ahead was clear, but this had come at a point when he was moving three other light engines around the station, trying to get those Leeds locals sent back down to their depot. And in the mix of all this, Sutton had simply forgotten the light locals standing there. That was all there was to it. Simple forgetfulness. When the Scotland-bound express was offered to him, he did everything he normally would have done had the line been clear. When he was asked, via bells, if the line was clear, he responded that it was, and in turn, offered the train forwards and we all know what happened next. This forgetfulness was corroborated by the driver of one of the other light locals at Hawes. He witnessed Bath and Scott set off under the proceed signal, and shortly after the Scotch Express following them through the station, he set off to the signal box immediately to speak to Sutton, who told him that he'd been of the impression that he'd sent off those light locals a while ago. Sutton was only alerted to the possibility of his error when the driver urged him to check his register of trains which didn't have them recorded as being dispatched. And the train registers are really, really crucial. It's kind of, it's gospel. It it says what you did, when you did, and and every action that a signaler takes has to complete it. And if Sutton had sent them away 14 minutes earlier, the register would have recorded that. The register didn't. And shortly after, Sutton telephoned the box at Ayers Gill. His question, had the light locals passed the box yet? The answer, which filled him with dread, you hadn't offered me any light locos, and the express hasn't passed either. By this time, the glow of the fire was visible to the north, and as Sutton's relief arrived, he quickly sent him away to the station master Bunce with the message, go to Bunce and tell him, I'm afraid I have wrecked the Scotch Express. As we know, there was a lot going on in this remote location. It was was unsurprising that the investigators considered this. They looked into whether or not the box had too high a workload. There was a lot to do, working the light locos between the timetable trains. That's before you even throw in those holiday specials into the mix. There was a possibility in some locations for additional staff to be added there. You could have a second signaler or a, a box boy, a young lad, to enter the register entries, but adding an extra pair of hands isn't without its risks. If the workload is manageable, then adding those hands in might reduce situational awareness in an environment where it is clearly very important. And as Pringle said in the report, I cannot agree that provided the work in a signal box is such as can, without undue strain, be properly performed by one man, there is any additional security to be obtained by the providing a second signalman. 
Dangers easily arise from divided responsibility, delegation of duty, and misunderstanding. If one man could keep track of the work reasonably, then two was actually possibly going to import risk into the situation. It's true. If you have a workload that you can do on your own, uh, we've all we've all done a project at school or college or in, at work where you've got it. You're on top of it. You know what you're doing. You know what you're saying and you are understanding stuff. But if you are made to work with a lab partner or whatever the equivalent is, if you're made to work with someone else who isn't on top of it, you get situations, oh, I thought you were doing that. Oh, but did you not? Oh, sorry, I missed If there is a situation where you alone are capable of managing the workload, it is far safer for just you to manage the workload. The investigation, however, did not come to the conclusion that the workload at Halls Junction was too heavy. Even considering that prior to 1910, there had been two boxes at the station, sharing the work of the normal signalling and the banking engine operation. Those two boxes, like I said earlier, had been amalgamated in 1910 into the one, which looked after everything. But in testament of how this wasn't adding too much work, Sutton himself in his evidence stated, I have not found any greater difficulty in working the traffic with a single box than formerly. In fact, I have found it easier in several ways, nor do I think the responsibility is any greater. He went on to clarify that previously there'd been a lot of telephone work between the two signal boxes, but that now this wasn't required. It was easier to keep on top of everything. And another signaller who worked at the same box corroborated this. And it makes sense. Previously, if you wanted to bring a locomotive across from the turntable road to, to the back platform line, you'd have to liaise with each other. Whereas if you are just responsible yourself for all of this signalling, you know the crack. You know what's going on, you know the situation, what you can do, what you can't do. You are the one responsible for it all. The workload in the Hawes Junction box was assessed by the Board of Trade as follows. Sutton had been on duty nine and a half hours when the collision occurred. The turn of duty for this block post is ten hours and he'd had a rest interval of 14 hours before coming on duty. The junction is on a main trunk line but there has been little alteration in the last 10 years in the average number of trains handled. The daily average from a return which the company provided was 100 trains a day in the winter, 128 days in the summer. And during the 24 hours which ended when the accident happened, the number of trains was 121. The average was exceeded, of course, because it was Christmas holiday traffic and Sutton, during his own shift, had dealt with 58 of them. And that number includes the arrival and dispatch of the light engines. So, judged from the, the usual point of view which the Board of Trade used regarding the number of trains dealt with in the 24-hour period, the the equipment that was in the box, the levers, the block and telephone instruments, they decided that a duty period that was 10 hours long would not be considered by the Board of Trade to be excessive at this post. So, after careful consideration... The conclusion into the accident that was raised by Major Pringle was as follows. After a very careful consideration of all of the circumstances, I have come to the conclusion that the responsibility for this accident rests upon Signalman Sutton, in that he took no action to remind himself of the position of the Carlisle engines, and that he did not assure himself by observation that the line was clear before allowing the express to approach.
While the blame for the accident was laid at the feet of Signalman Sutton, he was not the only one named in the report as having held an element of responsibility for the accident. The other named responsible party, which might surprise you, is Driver Bath. Not because those trains departed at a relatively easy pace, they had no reason to suggest a need to leave as if running from danger, which they kind of were. No, because Bath and in a smaller manner, Scott had failed to observe a specific rule, and it was one that we have discussed previously on this podcast. Rule 55. The railways and its signallers were clearly not immune from that most fateful human failing, forgetfulness, and long before 1910 there had been well, multiple situations where accidents had been caused because signallers had just forgotten about trains stood signals. Granted, the signal here was a little bit further down the line from the box, but still in the station limits, but sometimes signals had forgotten about trains that were outside their window. They'd have the smoke from the smokestack there, and they'd still have forgotten about it. So the industry came up with a rule to help prevent that. Rule 55. Now, we have discussed it before quite recently in the accident that took place at Quinton's Hill a few years after this one, and the ruling meant that if a train was brought to a stand at a signal within three minutes in clear weather or immediately in rain, snow or fog, the driver of the train must dispatch his fireman, guard or another member of staff riding on the train to the signal box to ensure that the signalman was aware of the presence of the train and that all safeguards to protect it were in place. The crew would then have to sign the train register to confirm that they went up and they checked it was safe. So, at Hall's Junction... It was dark and the weather up there wasn't grand. But it would have been reasonable for Scott and Bath not to arrange for a member of their crew to walk over to the box straight away. They knew that a train had just passed and that a signal couldn't clear straight away. But after a few minutes had passed, they should really have been thinking about doing something. They didn't attempt to attract the attention of the signaller after a few minutes by whistling. And by the time they'd been standing for five minutes... That is the point that the report says they really should have sent somebody over to see Sutton. When Pringle spoke to Bath about the issue, he was given two reasons why the rule wasn't obeyed on Christmas Eve. Bath stated that he was aware of Rule 55, as well he should be, and of the responsibility that rests upon a driver to make sure that his fireman goes back to the signal box, and his excuse for not carrying out the rule on this occasion was firstly that it was not the custom at Hall's Junction to carry out the rule in the case of light engines, and secondly, because he was momentarily expecting the signal to clear, and the time of detention did not appear to be long. We have talked on more than one occasion previously about the danger of rules being interpreted by those they are meant for, and this is no different, and Pringle felt much the same. He wrote in the report that he could not accept these excuses to be true. Rule 55, as it was in the rule book, specifically mentions light engines. It specifically covers them. And both drivers had their watches to refer to for the time of detention. Pringle added that the disregard of Rule 55 has on other occasions led to serious accidents and the neglect of the rule in this case cannot be regarded in anything other than a serious dereliction of duty. And considering the deaths that followed, I couldn't possibly disagree with that assessment.
The last point I want to explore today is what could have been done differently to prevent the accident from taking place. Somewhat frustratingly, I'm going to name two methods which not only would have done the job, but were both available at the time. The first we've spoken about previously, and it is a really simple piece of equipment which was introduced to tackle the forgetfulness of signalers. The humble collar. A physical signal collar which was supposed to fit around the lever of a signal which would remind the signaler of the train being in the way and would physically prevent him from pulling off that signal which would create a dangerous conflict. Really simple, really easy to train, really easy to introduce, low expense, a perfect safety feature. So why weren't collars used in the signal box at Hawes Junction? Was it simply? The Midland Railway simply hadn't ever adopted them despite their widespread use elsewhere on the national network. I guess that was one of the issues with multiple railway companies providing the same service with a limited amount of central control. (sighs) It is a pain though. It's really, really frustrating when something so simple was available but not used and time and time again it eats away a little bit when you make these episodes and you hear something like that. And even more frustratingly, Sutton had been using his own version of this protection. When he was being interviewed about the accident, he told Pringle how he often used the the poker um, of the fire in the signal box to hold the latch of the lever, working the signal in the rear of a train that was waiting at the signal. So it did virtually exactly the same thing. And it's actually a really good example of him working in a safer way than what was required. He wasn't trained to do this. He didn't have to do this, but he knew I've got a signal. I've got a train at that signal. So I'm going to put something on the signal protecting him to make sure I don't accidentally release it. It's the, it's the signalman equivalent of, if you think back to Apollo 13, there's a handwritten note on the detachment button and on the console that says, don't push or words of that effect. It's someone making sure they don't mess something up. And it would have been really safe, except for the second half of that recollection. He had not been in the habit of doing it in the case of light engines, because they are so frequently dealt with, and it's not often that they are kept waiting for any length of time. This is a great example, in my mind at least, of the benefits of working with consistency. And I'm actually moving slightly away from what was strictly written in the report, um, to something that is my own personal opinion regarding methods of work. Using a visual and physical cue, as Sutton was, is a really good example of best practice. It's a great method of work, which he obeyed. The line is blocked. Here's your physical blocker to remind you. But he wasn't using it for light engines. He had his reasons, as I've just gone through. But what he'd actually done was create two separate methods of work for the same situation. Two methods for the same situation. So every time the line was blocked, you'd have the same unsafe condition that it could exist. The line was blocked, but not every situation had the physical check in place to protect it. So the poker wasn't used in most of it, considering the number of light locos. Most of the situations, the poker wasn't used, which completely diminishes the value of ever using it in the first place. And exactly the same situation, exactly the same issue is created when Rule 55 wasn't being observed by light law cause. A method of work existed to prevent accidents from being taken place, but it wasn't applied consistently. And as we can tell, this has a particularly negative effect on effectiveness. 
The second technology, which would have had a real positive impact on the issues that could be experienced when visibility was a little lacking, or when weather was battering the windows of the signal box, as it so frequently did up there, was something else that we've discussed previously. Track circuiting. The basic principle behind track circuits lies in the connection of the two rails by the wheels and axle to short an electrical circuit. The circuit is monitored by equipment to detect the absence of trains, and since this is a safety appliance, fail-safe operation is crucial, so the circuit is designed to indicate the presence of a train when failures occur. If you install track circuiting, then you can have a visual indication in the signal box, either a light or another piece of equipment which reflects the situation out there on the track, and this means that checking whether the line was occupied was far, far simpler. While Britain was a firm adopter in signalling in general, and implementing it earlier and more comprehensively than many other parts of the world, track circuiting? That was actually an area where we were a little bit slower to introduce than some other places. Partly that was down to the fact that a great deal of wagons and carriages up to a certain point had axles constructed of wood which are not great at transmitting an electrical current. As technology advanced, though, track circuiting, track circuiting developed beyond simply providing notifications to signalers. It was used to electronically interlock points and signals, physically preventing signalers from generating conflicting movements, and eventually provided the necessary data for automatic signals to work, where the status of each aspect is just dictated by the track circuit blocks in advance of them. Back in 1910, however, track circuiting was certainly the exception, and not the norm. So the first recommendation of Major Pringle actually set out to make changes in that area. In view of the turntable work at Hawes Junction, and the number of engine movements, this yard should be treated as a special case. The up and down lines between the advanced starting signals and the crossover roads in rear of them, respectively, not a mouthful at all, should be track circuited, and the levers working the starting signals thereby controlled this block post can then be exempted from the operation of Rule 55. Remove the need to rely on Rule 55 and use technology to save lives going forwards. circuiting was not the only improvement recommended as an outcome of this accident. While it was not classed as a cause, the long turn of duty at such a busy box was recommended cut it to eight hours. It's more of a best practice suggestion, but one that made perfect sense. The Midland was recommended as well to provide, and I quote, further elaboration on the importance of Rule 55 and obeying it to their train crew. I can imagine the elaboration which was dished out was considerably firmer than that delicate wording would suggest. There was also a lengthy discussion in the report about the use of gaslighting for carriages, as it's clear that the fuel contributed to the flames which consumed the carriages on the dales of the border between Yorkshire and Cumbria. 
Two of the carriages, though, were lit electronically, and Pringle conceded that this was the safer system, which was pretty much evident to everybody, and that because of this, it should be adopted wherever possible, especially on long-distance passenger services. But it was a relatively new technology, and Pringle acknowledged that there was to be a long period of time while the transition took place. Hundreds of wagons in the country, hundreds of carriages, and can't just retrofit electric lights to all of them. There was a raft of suggestions made which should improve the safety of gas lighting systems, such as the provision of a valve which detected venting gas from a leak and shut off the supply, the use of stronger storage cylinders or narrower cylinders in stronger housing to store the gas, or to use fireproof materials in areas close to the system to help reduce the vulnerability of the carriages to firing in the event that the system leaked and a source of ignition was found. They're all really valid suggestion, and reading through it is good because it shows how sometimes you can't make the perfect ideal safety change instantly, but you can mitigate the more dangerous options until the point where the new system can be brought in. It is, and I will confess, sometimes difficult to write these episodes. Sometimes it's because I get writer's block, which seems like something so un- realistic so it's unnatural for a non-fiction podcast because i'm not writing i'm not making the story up the story is there i'm just trying to tell it to you in a way that is digestible and reads easier than a report from 1910 112 year old document but it's also difficult to write these episodes because of the content sometimes especially when the stories are like today's We've all done something stupid because we forgot something trivial. Uh, the bottle of Coke that, or other pop is available. The bottle of pop that we spilt because we forgot to screw the lid on properly. The game of pool that we lost because we forgot whether we were stripes or spots. And the meal that we ruined because the key ingredient is still in the fridge and you ate two hours ago. Everybody forgets things. And it normally has no significant impact to anybody. And even when it does, it impacts us and the people that we share our lives with. Just this little isolated group. I mean, I used to work at an airport and I saw some family holidays ruined by a forgotten passport, believe me. But the thing that gets me when I'm writing these types of episodes is just how damaging a similar level of forgetfulness can be when it is the act of someone in a position of authority with the responsibility of other people's lives in their hands. And the kicker is we can forgive forgetfulness. It happens to everyone. I do not know one person who would honestly hold their hands up and say they never forgot anything. There are hundreds of incidents on the railway every single year because somebody forgot something. But it's a report form. It's a conversation with a line manager. It's a, should we start that again, signaler message on the on the radio. It's not a disaster. A disaster didn't take place because there were rules and processes in place to catch that error. A dispatcher is not the only person checking the signal because if he forgets to check the signal, the guard or the driver will see that it is red and they will stop the process and the train will not depart. But disaster sometimes happens. Because rules and processes are not always followed. And when somebody didn't do what they were supposed to, 
when they fail to follow the rules and that forgetfulness costs lives? Well, that, for me at least, is a little harder to forgive. Thank you once again for joining us for another episode of Season 2 of Signals to Danger. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and look at the support or the shop pages. Now, if you do go onto that website and you notice at the bottom or somewhere else on there that it says that Signals to Danger is now a, a DF Rail Media production not been bought out or snug up or anything like that um, DF in DF Rail Media unsurprisingly does stand for Daniel Fox so it's still very much a me venture um, so don't be alarmed if you see that anyway until next episode travel safe